Hi, this is John from Prodigal Church. We want to thank you for listening to this week's teaching. The best way to watch and listen is through our Prodigal mobile app, available at your app store. We hope you are moved to love God and others in a greater way. Now, let's dive right into this week's teaching. Friends were packed into our living room. There was popcorn all over the floor. What a night that began with joy and fun and games now had all of us glued to the TV like mosquitoes to a bug zapper. And uh, there's, people are scrolling on their phones, seeing if this is real, if the, if, the, if the electoral college tally was actually accurate, or if this news organization was spinning it for their own reality. But at the end of the night, we saw the graphic with the overlaying dramatic music. The tally was in, this person had won. The person we dreaded. The person who doesn't line up with our Christian morality. They had won. They had become president. What A night that began with joy was now filled with dread. How could we endure? He doesn't line up with our Christian values. Had our prayers not been answered? Perhaps you can relate to this story. Does it sound familiar? See, it's a fictional story. It didn't really happen. And what you may have noticed is that I intentionally did not include the identity of the candidate who won or the respective party. So when you heard the election night story, you probably imagined a particular politician of a particular party in this nightmare scenario. For some of this outcome could have happened in November of 2016. For others, November 2012, perhaps 2008 or even 2004, or 2000, or 96, or 1992. And while I can't predict who will win the election two days from now, I can guarantee that this story will again play out in living rooms across our country. And also in 2024, and in 2028, and in every election from this point forward until Jesus comes home. Everybody is peddling fear. Every party is peddling fear, playing off of what you're scared of. And you can raise a lot of money peddling fear. The Republicans, the Republicans are going to take away your right to vote. Democrats are going to take away your guns. If the president is reelected, you fear what will happen to the soul of our country. If a socialist Democrat is elected, you fear the end of the world. Fear is going around. Let's make it even more real. Some might say from one party or the other, if you wear a mask, well, you're just a sheep. You're living in fear. If you don't wear a mask, well, you don't really care about people. You only care about yourself. And this is what we do. We, we make all, all arguments black and white. And we make all people fit into those two camps. We make it us versus them. And hence, we are where we are today as a country, as a church. This is where we are, divided. How did we get there? How do we get out? Fear, arguments, my camp, your camp, us, them. This is not the way of Jesus. So how do we get there and how do we get out? That's what we're going to be talking about here at the finale of our Jesus for President sermon series. So first, let's talk about cognitive bias. Now, Modern day psychology shows us an interesting phenomenon that we attribute to ourselves better motivations than we attribute to others. 
So I think that for the struggles that I have, I have really good explanations for those struggles. The struggles that you have, well, I think it's just your fault. You gain some weight, well, that's because you eat too much and you're lazy, okay? You're a bum, you're a lazy bum. I gain some weight, well, I have a metabolism issue. I'm, I'm big boned. Are you late for work? Well, that's because you're disorganized and you're lazy. It's called an alarm clock, get one. Am I late for work? Well, it's just the opposite, right? The reason I'm running late is because I was helping my kids get ready for school. The reason I'm late is I was on the phone with a friend who was going through a hard time. So I'm actually very organized and very responsible. In fact, it's because I was so organized and so caring and so responsible, that's why I'm late. Do you have a screaming child? Do I see your child screaming at the supermarket? Your kid's going crazy? Well, you're a bad parent. Do I have a screaming child at the supermarket? No, of course not. He's just tired, okay? He just didn't get a nap. This is attribution theory. This is cognitive bias. And we do this all the time, and it's rooted in the sense that for me to feel better about myself, part of that is pushing other people down. And as Christians, we're called to look at others through the lens of the cross, not through the lens that makes us look better and them look bad. That's not cross vision. So when it comes to the political scene, this is what it sounds like. The corrupt Democrats, they're just, they're just corrupt. You know why they act like the way they do. It's because they're all, it's their character. They're evil, they're corrupt. And the heartless Republicans, you know why they vote that way, right? I've met all of them, I've done all the research. I know every single Republican, they're heartless. They're just looking after that dollar. No, you're corrupt. No, you're corrupt. No, you're heartless. No, you're heartless. And we've all been sucked into this cognitive bias. Now, I hate to burst your bubble, and you're not going to like me for this, uh, but I want you to think about it, maybe over lunch. After you stop hating me, just you know, think about it for a second. Mature, emotionally intelligent, curious, empathetic people, they don't fall for that. They don't fall for the cognitive bias, the attribution theory. But political rhetoric feeds us this. It, it grabs us by the nose and leads us into saying and thinking all kinds of silly things that aren't true. Behaviors that aren't true. And you're better than that. And I'm better than that. So let's not participate in that anymore, okay? In fact, you can call people out when they start doing that. You can say, you know, you're suffering from a cognitive bias. And they'll look at you like, huh? And you're like, yeah, you're just suffering from a cognitive bias. I am an emotionally intelligent and empathetic person, and I don't suffer from that. I used to. But then I heard this fabulous sermon from this great-looking pastor, and it opened my eyes to this. And so, uh, yeah, you might want to say something like that. So we suffer from cognitive bias, which leads to group polarization. Social psychologists believe that this is another reason we have this great divide in our nation. And Christians seem particularly susceptible to group polarization because we tend to shop for churches that think and act and look just like us. And now the problem with this kind of behavior is that the more time we spend with people who are essentially identical to us, the more we become convinced that our way of relating both to God and to others is the correct way and all other ways are wrong and ignorant. 
And over time, our convictions grow stronger, our attitudes to different ideas and cultural expressions become more negative. And this happens because of an absence of diverse influences. In your life, do you have an absence of diverse influences? And if so, we tend to drift to polar opposites and become more divided and we retreat to the corners that we feel safe. Group members tend to adopt more extreme and narrow-minded thinking as time passes. This is what group polarization is. It's why we draw these strong lines between us and them, where these lines evolve into value judgments, where we're right and they're wrong and our perceptions of people has changed. And so we have to resist this temptation to drift to the corners. We have to listen, learn, and love. Something we talked about last week. Listen, learn, love. Jesus models this for us even in how he chose his disciples. Look at Matthew 10. These are the names of the 12 apostles. First, Simon, who is called Peter, and his brother Andrew, James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John, Philip and Bartholomew, Thomas and Matthew, the tax collector, James, son of Alphaeus, and Thaddeus, Simon the zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. Jesus called Matthew, a tax collector, and Simon, a zealot, to be his disciples, to spend time with them, to to be his core friends, his 12 closest friends in his inner circle. Tax collectors were the farthest right wing in Jewish culture. Zealots were the furthest left wing in Jewish culture. To compare them, it's not even close, but it's like Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and Tucker Carlson, okay? Uh, but it's even worse than that. Uh, for the Zealots wanted to assassinate tax collectors. Yet Matthew and Simon spent three years serving alongside one another following Jesus. And Jesus invites them to a transformative way of thinking through the kingdom of God. They had widely divergent political views, and yet they both followed Jesus faithfully together. See, the values of the new world that Jesus came to usher in are in conflict with the values of this world. The kingdom of God is not Republican, and the kingdom of God is not Democrat. The kingdom of God isn't defined by those who wear masks and those who don't. This is why it's foolish for us to be divided, because if we're a follower of Jesus, we're supposed to be kingdom people first, that we love God and we love others, that those are our utmost priorities and loyalties. We're to live the values of Jesus, even, those, even with those people who we disagree with, even those people who we would consider our enemies. Now, my heart is particularly broken to see the state of the global church, that we as a church are just as, if not more divided than the nation we reside in here in America. We have no concept that acceptance and agreement are two completely different things. We need to remember that Jesus invites us into a more civil way of being, defined by love, not lines. Jesus invites us to be defined by love not lines. The pastor and civil rights activist John Perkins recently made the comment, 
This generation is the first to turn hate into an asset. And my heart is broken for the local church because I think John Perkins is right. We live in a culture of suspicion and mistrust and us against them. And whatever the subject may be, politics or sexuality or immigration or income gaps or women's concerns, race, religion, any other social issue that people have differences or angst or suspicion or outrage or outright hate, these things shape our response to the world around us. And if we're a follower of Jesus, we have no business responding to the world in that hateful way. The world doesn't need you to be a jerk for Jesus. Because Jesus offered another way of responding to the world. Kindness. Gentle kindness. Love. And so we have this cognitive bias and we have this group polarization and there was this article written in the New York Times called, You're Not Going to Change Your Mind. And it follows the, the research done um, for the University of London's Journal of Experimental Psychology. And the study was conducted four years ago during the very contentious election between Donald Trump and Hillary Clinton. And it was about the length that we will go in our minds to believe what we want to believe regardless of the facts. And the study dove even deeper into this co confirmation bias to something called desirability bias. Desirability bias. And they looked at the people who were uh, cheering for Trump and cheering for Clinton, and the New York Times article explains this, that though there is a clear difference between what you believe and what you want to believe, a pessimist may expect the worst and hope for the best. But when it comes to political beliefs, what you expect and what you hope for often align perfectly. Here's how it played out. When people received desirable evidence or polls suggesting that their preferred candidate was going to win, they took note and incorporated that information into their belief about which candidate was most likely going to win the election. And in contrast, those people who received undesirable evidence, that it barely changed. That if the evidence said that they're not going to win their election, the candidate you want is not going to win the election. It barely moved the needle at all or changed their belief about which candidate they thought was most likely going to win. Simply put, this was the conclusion of the social scientists. Uh, they discovered what we already know about ourselves. We want to think what we want to think. We want to think what we want to think. And no matter what someone from the other party says, they can do no right. I'm convinced that if Trump cured cancer, I sincerely believe that there would be so many pundits on the left side that would not give him praise. Which wouldn't be a huge problem, of course, because he would give himself praise. Okay, okay, I get it. That's a joke. Okay, it's a joke. Don't hate me. Uh, it was funny, though. But no doubt this would happen if it was the other way, right? If Obama cured cancer, there would be some on the right that wouldn't give him credit for it. This is desirability bias. We see cognitive bias. We see attribution theory. We see group polarization. And we see desirability bias. And Jesus would have none of it. Jesus leads us to a different way, into love. And so as you head to the polls this Tuesday, 
And you should vote. You should head to the polls if you haven't voted already. We said this last week, but it bears repeating, especially in these contentious days ahead. As Christians, the way we talk about politics is just as important as what we believe about politics. Far too often we think it's about being right and at the end justifies the means. So I'm going to do whatever I have to do to convince someone to win, or do whatever I have to do to win the argument. Jesus gives us a better way. He calls us to something very different than that. Scripture is not going to tell you who to vote for or what policies or measures we should vote yes or no on. But it does tell us how we should interact with people when having those discussions. Especially in areas where we disagree with people. And this goes beyond just simple conversation with people. Some of you feel like you're off the hook because you don't really ever have contentious disagreements with people because you never talk to them. You never talk to people that you disagree with. And so you're always nice. You're always having loving conversations. But once you're at home and no one else around and you're in that safe zone and you turn on that news channel that you always like, you're still having unloving conversations. You're just having them internally. You still are having an unloving, disagreeing posture with those that you might hate. You're just doing it alone. And in many ways, this is probably worse because you are barricading yourself from people that you're called to love and the people that you're called to learn from. And in many ways, you are creating your own red or blue prison. And Jesus is the key to our freedom. Out of this red or blue prison, some of you, you're more political than you are spiritual. And God is saying, enough is enough. And that's a humbling question to ask. Are you able to look yourself in the mirror and to say, am I more spiritual than political? And if not, I need to make some changes. Check out what the Apostle Paul says in Colossians 3. But now you must also rid yourselves of all such things as these, anger, rage, malice, slander, and filthy language from your lips. And I would venture to say also from your mind. Just because you don't say it doesn't mean you get a pass. No, get rid of anger and malice even from your mind. Colossians 4, let your conversation always be full of grace, seasoned with salt. My wife and I picked up Chipotle uh, last week and I bring it back to the car and it smells delicious. And Sarah says, did you get the salt? Because doesn't Chipotle have fantastic salt? And I said, no. So I went back and I put my mask back on and I went in there and I waited for a little one of those little Dixie cups full of salt and it was delicious. Salt is tasty. Paul says, let your conversation be always full of grace seasoned with salt. And listen, everything I'm saying about conversations and discussing uh, politics, it applies to social media too, right? Social media is not a realm of reality where the teachings of Jesus don't apply. When it says, let there be no malice among you, that's true for Twitter too. When it says, let there be no deceit among you, that's true for Facebook. When it says, let there be no slander, 
That's true for Instagram as well. And far too often we use social media as this outlet to hide behind. And so we share things. We share things. And we only share things that we agree with. That has no place for disagreement. And, and, and this shouldn't be. We don't have to play the game that everyone else in our culture is playing. We should be different. We should be willing to listen. We should be trying to understand. We should show empathy. And we should pray for God's blessing upon the people whom we disagree with the most. Not God's wrath. That is the way of Jesus. That is the way of the cross. That is cross vision. Not cognitive bias vision. It's, it's not about being right and overpowering the other viewpoint. Picture it this way. Picture a young man picking up his prom date. He parks his car, he walks up to the gate, and right when he walks up to the gate, there's this big guard dog. Okay, this, this Rottweiler, this huge Rottweiler named Richie starts barking and tries to push you away. And we often experience this guard dog uh, in our conversations all the time, in the anger and defensiveness, right? And we have a choice. We can handle it in a few ways. We can bark back. Okay, you want to bark at me? I'm going to bark at you. <laughs> that doesn't really work, though. And it, may make, it might make you feel good, like you're getting back at them, but you won't get very far. Or you can say, you know what? I didn't sign up for this. All this, this barking that's involved. I'm out. I'm just going to leave. You can meet me at the prom. I'll meet you on the dance floor. Or you can acknowledge that that barking, that emotion and anger is a protective effort to ensure that threats don't get in. And so if you can, if you can reassure that Rottweiler named Richie, if you can reassure him that, he, that you are not the threat that he thinks you are, that, that you're just here for the prom, Richie. Good boy. I'm just here for the prom. Then the emotion and the anger can subside and you can dance the night away to your favorite song. How beautiful it would be that for Christ followers, when someone begins to angrily defend their view, that we can see the guard dog barking and our spirit can say, ah, I see what's going on here. Don't say it to their face, okay, just think it. But this, this, guard, this is a guard dog moment. They see me as a threat. I need to reassure. I can disarm the volatility and we can have a productive conversation. If we ask the question, how can I reassure you that I'm not a threat, that you think I am? We are moving forward in love. Can we do that in our everyday interactions with others? Can we do that with what we watch on TV? Can we do that with what we think as we watch the TV? And can we do that as we head to the polls for an important election in the history of our country this Tuesday, November 3rd. My encouragement, what I've been trying to say for six weeks now, is that regardless of who you vote for in two days, on Tuesday, November 3rd, that we, as followers of Christ, would vote for Jesus every day by how we live, and by how we love, that we can disagree politically, 
and we can love unconditionally. God, I pray that that would be true for us. That we can love those we disagree with. That there would be a radical and a supernatural and a powerful love that emanates from us. Even when we're in a room surrounded by people we disagree with. Even when there's hatred and, and envy and malice and anger in everybody else's voice in everybody else's mind when it comes to this election, may we be a voice of love, disarming guard dogs along the way in the name of love, in the name of Jesus. Amen.